But here we are in Genesis chapter number 22. And we've been going through a study of the book of Genesis. And last three months, we covered the first half of the book, approximately chapters 1 through 20. And we're going on, and we've been talking about a man named Abraham. And today we pick up, um, well, it's, it's certainly true that the book of Genesis is a book of stories and meaningful stories, stories that often either set the stage for the New Testament or have parallels to the New Testament. And that's what we find again today in chapter 22. We've talked about Abraham being an old man, complaining that his heir was going to be some guy that wasn't even related to him. His chief servant was going to be his heir. And he was frustrated with that. But God promised, no, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And then we talked about Abram and Sarah being a little impatient and decided to help God out. And so Ishmael was born from Sarah's handmaiden. And that wasn't God's plan. God said, no, no, I'll, I'll bless Ishmael for your sake. But I'm going to rename you Abraham because I'm going to make you the father, the patriarch of many nations, and you and Sarah are going to have a son. And that has happened. Isaac has been born. And as we get to the story, years later, little Isaac has grown up. And God is going to make a remarkable request of Abraham. He says, Abraham, I've got something for you to do. And now Abraham wasn't perfect. Abraham messed up sometimes. There's, there's a whole, there was this whole journey to Egypt that he took that God did not appear to him one time when he was in Egypt. And that might be an indicator, we're not 100% sure, that he may have kind of taken his own road. And we know with Ishmael, that Abraham took his own road and not the road that God originally intended for him. But there are times that Abraham does something worthy of being a good example for us. And this is one of those times that we can learn a lot from Abraham, sometimes called the father of faith. That Abraham, he, remember, he's the one that believed God, and it was imputed to him or credited to him as righteousness. And that foundational idea that we lean upon gets a little bit more formation in today's story. So we're going to talk about a substitute. That's the lesson that Likely chose for this lesson. I'm going to say a substitute provided because God's provision is a big part of this story as well as the idea of a substitute because the initial command of God and the task before Abraham was to sacrifice his, the star his only the son family um, tree. Well, Isaac was it. Yeah. As far as, and we're going to see, God is God tells Abraham that your offspring will be reckoned through Isaac. Mm -hmm. That Ishmael is not going to count as your family, Abraham, but only Isaac. So the stakes are high when God makes a seemingly contradictory request of Abraham. And let's get into it here as we get into chapter 22. 
So God is going to make this call. He said, Abraham, you're going to worship me. It's going to cost you something. And we're going to see how Abraham prepares to do just as God instructed. But then, as always, there's something really special going on at the end. As you see what God provides, an alternative. An alternative that points us directly to the New Testament. So, a couple things to have in mind as we go through this today. First, how did Abraham and Isaac, both of them, form a picture of the gospel? Think about how it compares to the gospel story. Second of all, what attributes is Abraham displaying for us that we as believers should emulate? And the third thing to keep in mind as we go through this story and to ask yourself, hopefully we'll be able to get pretty good answers to this when we get done. What lessons is God teaching us at the end of the story? Because I think there's a lot. The book of Genesis, and I've, I've heard some of the grumbling, another three months in Genesis. Some of you, it's not your favorite book. But I will say that understanding the stories in the book of Genesis is key to fully understanding the gospel. Yes. And there's so many layers and there's a richness that you miss in the New Testament if you're not well-versed in the stories of the Old Testament. There's references you won't get and there's a richness to it that you won't enjoy. So that is why these stories are so so important. Today, like the Larnell Harris song, we're going to talk about when praise demands a sacrifice and what a sacrifice it would be as we get into our verses. So we'll see four things about that. Um, I'm going to keep my division somewhat close to those in your book. I think your book only has the first three verses. We'll go ahead and read the first four. Fourth one short. doesn't really matter where we stick it. And then we'll go from there, about four verses at a time. So, first of all, a little bit of background, just to kind of finish catching up the story with where we are in the context. Back in chapter 17, now of course, God's promises to Abraham go all the way back to chapter 12. But I found that what God said in chapter 17 is more pertinent today, where he said, and when God said no, this was when Abraham was saying, Lord, could Ishmael just be before you? Could you just bless Ishmael? I've got Ishmael. Can he just be my heir? Like, I feel like we've kind of took care of your promise, God. We helped you out. But God's answer was no. And it's interesting that you go through the Old Testament. There's a time when God's answer is no. Did you know sometimes the answer to your prayer is no? Because God's still in charge, isn't he? And sometimes it's a good thing he says no. Because what we thought was going to be a real good thing may turn out to be not so great. Well, he tells Abraham no. And we're going to see this throughout the story. He's going to say no to Esau and yes to Jacob. God has a specific plan of redemption. He's going to carry out his way perfectly. So the answer was no in verse 19 of chapter 17. But Sarah, your wife, will bury you a son. Not Sarah's handmaid. Yes, you have Ishmael, but you're going to have Isaac. And you will call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. There's a reason why God is referenced as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because that was the line of promise. Okay? As we talked about two weeks ago, 
it was very exclusive until it opened up to us and God broke down the wall of hostility and then Jew and Gentile alike could find faith in this Messiah Jesus. But again, in this age, God is making it more and more narrow as he works towards the Messiah and then eventually not just Jacob, but David, right? The house of David would be the ruling house until Jesus came. Now, in chapter 21, another thing, one other thing here. Um, God said to Abraham, don't be displeased because of the boy and your slave woman. Once again, in chapter 21, the last chapter that we didn't study through in detail, God tells Abraham, hey, again, Ishmael comes up in conversation. And, and Abraham is upset because Sarah has said, this boy Ishmael is not going to be an heir in our house, and she wants to kick them out of the house. They need to go live somewhere else. Sarah and, Ishmael, uh, Sarah and Hagar, from the moment Hagar gets pregnant, they're just, they just don't get along, folks. They don't get along. It's, that's a, they're like that pair of Baptists that don't sit on the same pew, okay? They just can't get along. They don't go to lunch together. They just, they, because uh, Hagar looks down on, on Sarah because, well, I got pregnant. What's wrong with you, lady? And, and Sarah's jealous, like, you got pregnant? I could, you know, so all this animosity. And, and well, support Abraham. Of course, it would, you went along with it, buddy, so you can't really complain. But he's, he's, he is kind of complaining here. And God says, don't be displeased with how this turns out. Do whatever Sarah says. And if she says to kick out Ishmael and Hagar, you do that. Because they're not your heir. Your offspring will be through Isaac, as it says in verse 12. So with Isaac, God makes it very clear. Isaac is the child of promise. He alone. And we need to understand that because when we get to chapter 22, and there's all this talk about, hey, Abraham, his only son, we need to ask, well, wait a minute, what about Ishmael? And he actually had other children. But he only had one son of promise. That's why Isaac is so important here. All right? So I wanted to point that out. As we get into our text, let's jump in. First four verses of chapter 22. And here's what it says. After these things, so after all that discussion in chapter 21, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here am I, he answered. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering from on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his young men, and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. So there's the scene. There's the situation. And of all the things that might have, well, we know a lot of things were running through Abraham's mind. I'm going to tell you how we know that in a few minutes. But you can just imagine what might have been running through his mind. It might have started with, God, are you crazy? Are you kidding me? You've just been making all these promises for years to me, and you finally gave me my Isaac. And you promised him and he's here and he's growing up and now he's you know this strapling young lad and he can walk beside me he's not a toddler anymore and and now you're 
you want me to what? But notice that we don't, of all the times Abraham, you know, has these real frank, honest conversations with God. God, will you spare Sodom if there's 10 righteous people? Remember, he talked them all the way down from 50 to 20 to 10 in the story of Lot. Abraham's not shy about talking with God, but we don't see him complaining or questioning here. It's a direct command. Notice his attitude here. I am. And he maybe not understand, but he just did it, didn't he? He he got up early in the morning. Now, as a professional procrastinator, I have a hard time understanding Abraham's approach here. Because I could find a lot of reasons to procrastinate. You know what? I'm supposed to go kill my son. I think I'll wait till noon to pack up. But he got up early in the morning because God gave him a command. And even though he didn't fully understand it, he trusted and understood he needed to do whatever God told him to do. So he got up early in the morning without any apparent delay or hesitation. And he got ready to do exactly what God said. He split wood. Like he actively prepared for what God told him to do. It didn't sound like a great thing to do. And there he is making preparations. He got busy doing the last thing God told him to do. And that's what he did. And he has two young servants come with him. It's a fairly intimate group. But there may have been too much. I mean, you bring everything you need to build an altar and to build a fire. Probably more than just he and, and young Isaac could, could handle. So he had his servants and, and they as few as it, I guess as he could get away with. And they went off. Now where did they go? This is actually pretty important. They went to a place called Moriah. And they were, there were mountains there. Traditionally, we understand that the Mount Moriah that Abraham was journeying to in this story was the Temple Mount, where Solomon would later build the first temple. And today you could go there and find the Wailing Wall, the remnants of the Temple of Roman era, the Roman era after it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So that's, this is not some insignificant spot historically, and we'll talk more about that a little later. But notice what Abraham did. And remember what it said at the very beginning. God tested Abraham, and guess what? Abraham accepted the test. He could have complained, this isn't fair. He could have grumbled. He could have hesitated. But Abraham, the father of faith, accepted the test. He said, so be it. Here I am. Here I go. Not always my first reaction when a test comes my way. But understand the purpose of a test. There's two possible purposes of a test. I know a little bit about tests, being a teacher. Sometimes the purpose of a test is to find out how well someone else is going to do. And sometimes the purpose of a test is for the test taker to learn how well they can do. Probably a mix here, although I would argue that God 
didn't really need to do this to know what Abraham was capable of. But I think he needed to show Abraham something. And I think he needed to show us something. So I think there's a third reason that sometimes the test isn't for the kid, it's for the parents. Or for others to learn from. And here's why I think. You know, we still talk about um, the story. We don't know for sure it's true. George Washington admitting to his father that he chopped down the cherry, cherry tree. Isn't that still a valuable story for us that we learn the value of honesty that encourages us if we still talk about that in school today uh, you know about that virtue that just fess up to what you did and be an honest person so what we learn about abraham is valuable to us as the observers as it was to him and god has a purpose in it as well as we're going to see but remember it was a test this wasn't a punishment when God tests you, it isn't for your harm. It isn't because he's angry at you. It's because God wants to show you something. Something about yourself and something about his faithfulness. And we see all of that in the story. So this should be a big encouragement for us when the day of a test comes. So we move on to verses 5 through 8. And we see the continuation of Abraham's obedience of him continuing every excuse and every reason to hesitate and to question and to complain, but he doesn't do that. So in verse 5, that Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac in his hand. He took the fire and the knife. And the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father. And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. Oh, there's a richness to this story right here. So he leaves the servants. I think part of that was the servants probably would have interfered. They wouldn't have understand what God had asked Abraham to do, and they probably would have intervened and probably would have prevented Abraham from doing what God instructed. They would not have understood. Abraham didn't understand this instruction. But the most curious part of this and notice how Abraham's fully prepared, all right? He's got the wood. He's got a torch or something, you know, to set it on fire. And he's got a knife. He's got everything he needs. This is not like, this is not a pocket knife, okay? This is undoubtedly a knife that would have been sufficient to kill an animal and then sacrifice it on the altar. But, of course, you know the instruction. And let's be clear here. God in no way in the story is sanctioning child sacrifice. That would become just absolutely forbidden in the law of Moses in the future. So don't misunderstand. God wanted to see if Abraham was willing to give up his son. And we're going to see God never intended for him to go through with it. It was a test. It wasn't something God actually wanted to happen. So don't mistake God for some kind of evil force that actually wanted 
Isaac to die. That's not what's going on. This is a test of Abraham's allegiance and faithfulness and obedience. And so far, I have to say, Abraham is passing the test with flying colors. How easy it would have been for him to show up. Oops, I forgot the knife. I guess I can't do it. But he prepared diligently and was ready to do exactly what God had asked. And there he is. And as they're walking away from the two servants, of course, Isaac asks the question, Father, I think we're missing something. Now, this is kind of notable. I'm not to spend a lot of time on it, but notice that young Isaac knew enough about worship to know what was going on here, that he would take an animal, that he would sacrifice it, right? Ever since Abel, way back in early chapters of Genesis, we've seen that animal sacrifice has been part of worshiping God, something that honors God. It's what God wants us, is to give a worship that costs something, something that's alive. And Isaac said, there's something missing here. And he realizes it. He asks his father, and you can see what a tender relationship they have. I don't know exactly how old Isaac is. Maybe there's some way to know. Well, I just, obviously, he's a young, a young lad obviously old enough to realize we got the fire, we got the wood, got the knife, where's the animal? Abraham, two things he did here. Did you catch it in verse 5? He said, me and the lad are going to go worship and we'll be back. And he didn't know who Arnold Schwarzenegger was, so it wasn't that kind of I'll be back. But he said, we're going to be back. Now, if you go and you take a knife to your son on an altar as a sacrifice, which means the, the animal or creature dies, then um, you're, going to bring him, you're going to bring his dead body back. But it's not the way it sounded, the way he said it. We're going to worship and we'll come back to you. That was a statement of faith because Abraham believed that somehow God was going to make this right. He trusted God's character enough that if I do what God said, even though I don't understand how it could possibly work out well, somehow God's going to bring good out of this. And so he is speaking in faith, positive attitude, not like a generic, I'm just going to have a positive attitude and today will go well. But his faith was in God and in God's character. And because of that, he said, God's going to work this for good. Even though this sounds like a terrible thing, somehow God's going to work this for good. And notice in verse 8, in response to Isaac, and what a heartbreaking question to hear from the lad when he finally realizes something is off here. Like, what's going on, Daddy? Where's the animal? Can you imagine how that felt, Abraham? I got to fess up what God told me to do. But notice how he handles it. He says, you know what? God's going to provide a lamb. There's no way that Abraham understood the meaning of that statement, but I think we have a hint as to what that means, that God was going to provide a lamb, the same God that said, I'm going to bless all the nations through you, Abraham, and we talked a few weeks ago about how that had to be talking about the Messiah, the Christ, who was going to be our Savior, that had to be it. 
that had to be it. God's going to provide a lamb. He's going to do that literally and figuratively in the story. So the two of them walk on together, but Abraham being prepared for worship, having taught his son about worship, now was teaching his son to trust God, to provide what he didn't have, a way to worship and to obey without losing his son. And through his actions, Abraham is demonstrating his faith. That's a big part of what we want to talk about today. That the kind of faith that changes your life, the kind of faith that's real, living faith, will always produce good works. It's not that we try to be good and then God accepts us. God accepts us as sinners. But our faith, when that becomes credited as righteousness, it's not just some credit on the book somewhere, but it's a life-changing thing that our life begins to change and we begin to actually do things that are good and right. Not every time, not in perfection, but real faith produces real results. And that's what we see in Abraham's life. And that was part of the test, that as you test your faith, if your faith is real, you're going to pass the test more often than not. You're going to at least pass the test sometimes. I tell my students, you know what? You can't fake math. You don't just magically pass the math test. You must know something if you got the right answers, unless you got them from your neighbor, in which case we're going to have a talk. But the fact is that we may not have a perfect record. We may have fallen flat on our face like Abraham did in the case of Ishmael, in the case of running away to Egypt. But there's going to be times that we do pass the test, and then we can say, hallelujah, that must have been God, because I never would have passed that test without him. And that is what we see in Abraham. His actions are demonstrating the reality and sincerity of his faith. Who could do that? The world looks at Abraham. Who can do that? Who could take their most precious son, the only son that's actually related to him, the son of the promise, and put him on an altar? How can that person walk through that trial and not be totally devastated? How can they find joy in the midst of suffering? And it's at those times that God works through us and shows the reality of our faith. And without trouble, how would you show someone your faith? Without this test, how do we know the depth of the faith and loyalty of Abraham? We wouldn't know it. You have to put it to the test, and God did that for us. So that we could see what it looks like to be a believer in the life of Abraham for him to be our example. Let's look at this verse in Hebrews chapter 11. Because even the writer of Hebrews, whether you're in the Apostle Paul camp or you think it was someone else. But we believe these are the words inspired. Do you remember Hebrews chapter 11? The hall of faith. All these great ones and the things they did given to us as examples of encouragement for our faith that we would walk with the Lord in the current day. And in verse 17 through 19, here's just a few of the verses on Abraham, and here's what it says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. We saw the verse ourselves, didn't we? He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, 
from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. How did Abraham go through with it? How did he bring his son up to that altar? We'll see him actually finishing his part of the job in just a minute. In verse 9 through 10, how did he do it? Because he said, I, I don't know how this is going to turn out. But if God has to raise Isaac back from the dead after I stab him with this knife and offer him up, and I don't know, was it going to be a burnt offering? He was going to set him on fire? And Abraham said, I don't care what it is. God is so great. If he has to bring him back to life after all of this, he can do it. I'm trusting God because he can do anything. And God promised me a nation out of this kid. And there's nothing I could possibly do to mess it up. That's, my, that's what I believe about God, and so I'm going to carry it through because I believe that God is loving and compassionate and holy and just and able to fulfill his promises no matter what. That's faith. That's faith. That only comes by the Holy Spirit. That only comes when God is inside of us. And God gives us the faith to just trust him when it doesn't make any sense? Do we not as believers have a peace that passes understanding? I don't know about you. This is really important to me. I have a reputation of being a smart guy. I think of myself as an intellectual. But God is not limited by my intellect. It's okay if I don't understand what he's doing. I just need to trust him. And so here we are. He said, whatever it takes, God is still going to keep his promises. I'm just going to obey what he told me to do, even if it doesn't make sense. And God will bring him back from the dead if he has to, before God will break a promise to me. And that was the faith that Abraham is operating in right here in Genesis 22. So we see him advancing with trust. I don't understand. This is the craziest thing God has ever told me to do, and I'm still going to do it because I trust him. And that brings us to verses 9 through 10. So he accepts the test. He advances with trust. And then we see him complete the preparations. Let's look at 9 through 10. As your book goes a little further there, I think. But let's look at these first two verses. When they arrived at the place God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood that Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. With every intention of doing it. And you might ask, why did God wait so long? And I think it's because I could see myself chickening out here. I could see myself putting him on the wood. I can maybe even see tying him up. But to reach for the knife, that'd be hard. That'd be hard. But Abraham demonstrated a full intent to obey God to the point that he had the knife raised, ready to plunge into his son's heart. He was absolutely ready to do what God asked him to do. And this is what I'm saying until we come to the time of testing, and it's time to raise the knife, that's when we know if we're fully committed and we really trust God. And Abraham wasn't chickening out. 
he was ready to do. He was ready to obey. I'm going to read from the book of James, but I'm just reminded of another verse. James or First John, I've forgotten. But it says, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. My friends, Abraham was a doer of the word. God gave him a command, and he wasn't just going to pay a lip service. He was ready to do it, even though it was a hard thing to do. It was so hard. I can't even imagine. Well, let's look at James chapter 2. 20 through 26. I want to talk about this. I'm not here to be controversial. I want you to understand that what Paul says about Abraham and what James says about Abraham are compatible. And when James talks about the story of Abraham, we know that he was justified by his faith. But James makes the point that real faith produces real results. And you ought to be able to see it in a person's actions. James is not saying that our works precede our faith. He's saying our works show our faith. And so here's what he says. Do you want to see a faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, as we're looking at? Remember, the Bible is one collection of writings from one author, the Holy Spirit. And the Bible helps interpret itself. And here we have James writing by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, saying these things. And notice what he says in verse 22. All right, Don't get thrown off by that phrase, justified by works. He's saying that when you pass the test, it shows your faith. Your works show your faith. Isn't that what he's saying in verse 22? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And it fulfilled, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, how do we know that Abraham believed God? Look at what he did. Only a person who fully trusted God would raise a knife on his own son that he loved. And notice verse 26. Just like a body is dead apart from its spirit, faith apart from works is dead. And I worry that today... We have spent so much time concentrating on just believe in Jesus that we've fallen short on discipling people and saying, if you really trusted in Jesus, you should be growing in your faith and your life should be changed. Because a genuine faith is going to produce that kind of change in our life. And if we're not seeing that, something has gone terribly wrong and we need to check and see if we're really saved. And that is the point here. In Abraham, we see the faith and the actions. And they ought to go together. And we oughtn't say, I'm going to put faith on this shelf, I'm going to put works on this shelf. Okay? The only question about faith and works is which one comes first. And people will say works come first. That's just wrong. Because if our works could save us, the nation of Israel never would have gone to exile. They would have just behaved, and they would have been a righteous nation, and they were never, never able to do it. We cannot put our works first. We must have a change by faith first, but then, if it's a real, the faith we have in Jesus should change our lives. And if that's not what we're telling people, then why are we bothering preaching? If we can't, if, God, if Jesus can't change their life, and we're just getting a jail out of free card, I don't think that's the gospel at all. There should be a change. We should experience joy, and we should experience new life. 
Isn't that the whole idea of baptism? You go in the water, but you come back out. You come out different. And that's what's saying. When you pass the test in your life, other people will see your faith is real, and they'll want to believe in that same Jesus. But if your life doesn't change, what have you got to offer them? You got nothing. So it's so important that if we have a genuine faith, that we let it change us, that we learn to obey not out of our own willpower or intellect or strength or a character that we have, but we just let God direct us and we learn to trust him enough to do what he says. Otherwise, do you really have any faith in him at all? Well, Abraham passed the test and we see his faith completed by his works. And it encourages us if he could do that and God, he could trust God. And look how that story worked out. We're going to look in just a minute. Maybe I can trust God in my situation too. And that's the challenge for us. But notice what Abraham did. He saw all the way through and he abided by the terms that God instructed him. God said, I want you to do this and exactly this. And Abraham made the preparations and lifted the knife to do exactly what God said to do. Even when it didn't make sense. Even when it must have crushed his soul. He did it. God, you said, tie up and I sacrifice my son Isaac. I'm raising the knife and he was ready. He was about to plunge the knife. But we're very happy the story doesn't end there. That'd be a weird place to walk out of the room. Well, y'all have a good service today. <laughs> We're not going to do that. It was late last night, and I had to turn a movie off because I knew it was okay. It's already 1230. I got to teach tomorrow. I got to turn it off. <laughs> Luckily, I can stream the rest of the movie. But I'm not going to leave you hanging. Let's take a look at verses 11 through 14. And what a precious story here. I'm kind of combining the last two sections in your materials. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, you replied, here I am. Does that sound familiar? I think that's what he said before. <laughs> then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. And then in verse 13 and 14, Abraham looked up, and what did he see? A ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went up and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. There's a, a funny line in The Lord of the Rings where the wizard Gandalf says, wizards are never late. They arrive precisely when they intend to. I don't think Gandalf was right, because I'm pretty sure several times in the story he was late. And he was just saying that because he could. But I will tell you something about the God we worship. He is never late. Right on time, he arrives and interrupts Abraham because I just needed to know you were ready to do it. I'm not going to make you do it, Abraham. It was a test, and you passed the test. And so God shows up right on cue and says, 
The point of this was not to kill your son. The point of this was to be willing to give up your most precious son. And there's two parts to that. And I wonder sometimes, you know, are the times in my life that I was wrestling with God and God just wanted me to be willing to give something up? You know, God wants to be first in our lives, doesn't he? God doesn't accept second place. Nothing is really worthy of being above him anyway, but we still struggle with that, whether it's stuff, careers, our physical fitness, our family, all essentially very good things. Isaac was a good thing. It wasn't that Isaac was a bad thing, but God said, I need to know you're willing to give him up for me. Are you just following me because of the promises, or are you following me because I'm God? Well, we know the answer. He was even willing to give up his son. But again, I think the lesson's for us. Where have we heard this before? You have not withheld your only son from me. You were willing to give up your only son for me. God didn't ask Abraham to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. Because God gave up his one and only son for us. John 3.16. God was through Abraham foreshadowing his plan of salvation for all of us. He was saying, you follow me and be willing to give up anything for me. Not that that's the price of following me. It's just that's the kind of devotion I want from you. But here's what I want you to know. I'm just as devoted to fulfill my end of the covenant to you. I'm not going to withhold anything from you. All the promises I made you about the promised land and the Messiah and blessing all nations, I'll give it to you no matter what it costs me. Abraham here is giving us a picture of God's love for us and his willingness to do whatever it takes to get us to heaven. And if we struggle with does God really love me? Does God care about me? And then we turn our attention to the cross. Those questions just evaporate because we see what he was willing to do to pay the price for our salvation and to make us right with him and to offer peace and to gain our entrance into heaven and yet satisfy his justice. You haven't withheld your only son for me. And God says, I haven't withheld my son for me. I gave it all. And there's additional richness here to talk about. But let's talk about this ram. I had to look it up. I'll admit, I typed into Google, is a ram a sheep? Turns out it is. It's a sheep that's a year old or more. It's a lamb if it's less than a year old. Yes, I got to my age and I did not know that. And sometimes we just have to back up and ask the basic questions. Now, the important thing about the situation was how was the ram caught? It's in the thickets, right? Now, you walk through the thickets, even here in Georgia, and you might get a little scratched up. But what part of the ram was in the thicket? The horns. Now, why was that important, folks? Crown 
What? I love the crown of thorns stuff. Mm-hmm. I hadn't mm-hmm. thought about that. It's good having visitors. But listen, later on in the Old Testament, when Moses gives the law, and an animal was to be sacrificed, could it be just any animal? Could it be sickly? Could it be injured? It had to be spotless, right? Without blemish is the phrase we see many times in the Old Testament. If this animal had been damaged by the thicket, it would not have been an appropriate sacrifice. And it would not have been an appropriate substitute for Isaac. Now, all the things that Abraham said earlier, God's going to provide a lamb. He provided this ram, and it was exactly the kind of animal that Abraham needed to take Isaac off the altar, offer this to God acceptably. So God provided exactly in that moment what he needed. Not until then. God's been quiet this whole time since he gave the command. And at just the right moment, God provided exactly what Abraham needed. Isn't that amazing? Now, the name, some of you know the name, Jehovah Jireh. That's what it is in the Hebrew. Jehovah Jireh is the God who provides. In our translation, is spelled out, the Lord will provide. And notice it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Oh, we got to talk about that, folks. On the Lord's mountain? You mean like Mount Moriah? You mean the mountain they would later make the temple on? All right, before we get to the rest of that, let's look at a couple of verses. You know this one, and some of us know this when we study the book of John. Remember when John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And just as this ram came at just the right time, so Isaac could be spared from being killed on the altar and he could be killed in his place and allow God's command for worship to carry on. Jesus came as our lamb. What kind of lamb? A Passover lamb, right? A Passover lamb, again, that had to be spotless that had to be killed on the Passover night. Remember when God passed over and the death angel avoided the Israelites, but the firstborn of Egypt died. God is saying, I'm going to spare you from the death that you really deserve. The fact is that I can't meet God's justice and his righteousness on my own. And I deserve the death penalty because I cannot say I'm an innocent man. I cannot reach perfection. I needed a perfect man to take my place, and that's what Jesus did. So he's the Lamb of God. Of course, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the parallel we've talked about, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And just like this ram in the thicket, God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but to do what? So the world might be saved through him, just like Isaac was saved by that ram that not accidentally got caught in the thicket just when Abraham needed it. God intentionally sent Jesus to die for our sins so that we might be saved and avoid God's wrath and judgment. And one more verse I thought was worth mentioning. So Philippians chapter 4. He's the provider. The Lord will provide. Is that, is that a story that has any kind of connection to us as believers walking through life? Absolutely. Paul said, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
If God gave you Jesus, what's he not able to give you at just the right time? What can God not give us? To him be the glory forever and ever. Now, one last thing to look at. I want to show you, and we might have looked at this when we were studying the temple at some point, but I pulled this picture from ESV.org, the East uh, English Standard Version website. And this is, we're not sure, we're not exactly sure where Golgotha was, where the Jesus was crucified on the cross. So we're not exactly sure where Moriah, that, you know, we think Moriah and the Temple Mount were the same. We definitely know where the Temple Mount is, okay? But here's a rendition of how we think it might have all fit together. And what I want you to notice, so remember, on this mount, the Lord will provide. What mount? Moriah. What was built there, as we understand it, this temple. So this temple was built, and there's the temple up here. And we, we know that Golgotha was outside, or Calvary, was outside the city limits. You couldn't put someone to death in city limits. It was against Jewish law. So we think that the city was here, the temple was to the north, and then here... Maybe to a little bit to the south. I'm not sure direction-wise, but this is the way it looks in our picture where Jesus was crucified. So on this mount where Jesus taught the people on several occasions, you could look down and see the Lamb of God dying on a cross, providing our salvation, just as this story in Genesis chapter 22 parallels. The Lamb of God could be seen from the Temple Mount, where thousands of years before, God had provided a, a ram in the wilderness to rescue Isaac at just the right moment. And through Abraham's obedience and faith, we came later to the day of the Messiah, paying for our sins. There's the connection. God sent his only son so that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if God has provided us so great a salvation, then we have to stop and, and realize he's the ultimate provider. He was willing to give up his son for us. And we should be thankful, and we should learn to trust him more, because he'll never let us down. And we'll never be able to outgive what he's given to us. But we have to learn to trust him because that's the kind of God we serve. The kind of God who does that. So let's do this. God made a transfer in the day of Abraham. And he said, nope, Abraham, just hold up right there. Don't swing that knife. I'm going to take your son Isaac off this altar. I'm going to put this ram on instead. And we're going to worship that way. I just need to know you were willing to give me everything. And you were willing to obey me even when you didn't understand. And then what happened in that same site? God sent the Lamb of God to die for our sins so that we wouldn't have to suffer and die for our own. God transferred our sins to Jesus through our faith in him. And we can celebrate Abraham, and what a celebration it was as they walked down the road. Everybody must wonder why they were so happy. They didn't understand why Abraham had gone to worship with Isaac. He thought he was just going to see his first animal sacrifice. 
Imagine the spring in Abraham's step as he walked home and saw how God had worked everything out. What a glorious day. It looked like it was going to be an awful day. Well, I don't know how your week has gone. But I do know this. We can celebrate that Jesus went to the cross for us and that we can trust a God who won't withhold anything from us, who is perfectly faithful, that if we'll obey him, he will provide everything we need. He is Jehovah Jireh. Don't know about you, but I needed a reminder of that. So let's trust him and obey him because he never falls short of his promises. Advance this. And we'll be in Genesis 24 and 27 coming up. Let's close out with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for providing for us. You provide for us in the daily steps of life. And you provided for us so great a salvation. You made the only substitute that could die for us as a perfect righteous man so that we could have peace with you because we could never measure up on that. And because of that freedom and because of the reality of the faith in our lives, our lives are changed. We are different. We may not always pass the test, but you've given us a faith that can pass the test. And I hope that others see us, they'll see that it's a real faith that changes lives and something that they can experience too. Lord, just help us to learn the lesson when we can't figure it out, when we don't understand what you're doing, when we we just can't trace your hand, but we can trust your heart. So, Lord, help us to do that and to be the joy and the light this world needs so they can see that you are the faithful God who keeps its promises. And thank you for being exactly that and for your grace and unmerited favor towards us through Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Scott. Thank you, my man.